All right, our passage this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Welcome to everybody. Glad that you can be here with us at this new church called Trinity. We have only been here for, I believe, right at two months. We launched on April 21st. We're right at the 23rd. It's today the 23rd of June. And so we're about two months into being a new church in this community. Uh, If you want to know a little bit about who we are and what we're about, we're a church that is going to get you consistently to what we believe is the heartbeat of the gospel. It revolves around a person and not a set of teachings. It is about Jesus, and we're really excited to have begun this church with this particular uh, sermon series entitled Conversations with Jesus. We want you to have a conversation with Jesus, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you consider yourself somebody who is on the outside looking in. Maybe a friend has brought you. Maybe you're curious. 
Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you've got doubt. Those things are part of the fabric of this church. We have started this church so that people who don't like church can feel comfortable coming here. And really, that all revolves around people who do come to this church, who call Trinity home, having a bigger vision for their community, having a vision for their friends, and being willing to engage in spiritual conversation, realizing that a lot of people do not think like we do, believe like we do, but might want to have an honest conversation. That's one of the reasons that we have started this church, so we're glad that you can be here no matter where you are in that starting point and getting to know us as we get to know you. As I mentioned, uh, this series is entitled Conversations with Jesus, and throughout this series, we have watched different people engage with Jesus for different reasons, and each person has come looking for something. But what they don't realize is often at the end of that conversation, they might not have even realized it by the end, but what they're looking for is Jesus himself. See, and Jesus is profoundly personal. He is paying attention to each individual or group of people who come in. He is paying attention to the person. He's not looking over their head. He's not thinking about what's coming next. He is paying deep attention to the individual right in front of him. He is a master conversationalist. He gets under the surface, he gets to the heart, and he offers each person an opportunity to change their life and follow him. This is a wonderfully rich, beautiful, long conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman at a well, potentially a rather well-known story. And I think this conversation revolves around a question that's as relevant today as it was back then, and that question is, where can I find happiness? Where can I find happiness? But what is the wellspring of joy and satisfaction and contentment? Where can I find it? Where can I find something that is going to continually make my heart sing? That's what we're going to look at. That big question, I think, is undergirding this conversation. Three things I'll walk you through if you're a note taker. Number one, Jesus' diagnosis of the heart and what's going on the diagnosis that he provides, number two, the treatment that he suggests, and number three, what I'm calling a lasting cure for the human heart and this search for joy and happiness. So the diagnosis, treatment, and a lasting cure. So under the first one, let's look at verse five. It's in your bulletin, potentially on the screen. Verse five. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Much of Jesus' ministry is located up in the northern region. It's called Galilee. Many of the stories that we have already looked at in this series are from that region. Generally, he's up north. Potentially, he's down south in a region called Judea near the big city of Jerusalem. I believe the distance between Galilee and Judea is around 60 miles. Right smack in the middle is a place called Samaria. It is a place that most Jews would want to avoid. As you'll see in a moment, you'll understand why. This is where Jesus finds himself in this story, smack in the middle in Samaria. And Jesus has been walking in the heat of the day. It's about the sixth hour, which for us means it's about noon. Keep that in mind. It's a very important detail in the story. It's noon, and he's tired, and he's weary because he's human, right? Because it's hot, because it's the middle of the day in the Middle East. He's probably been walking 15 to 20 miles 
It's noon. He's hot. He's tired. He's human. And he sits down beside Jacob's well when he encounters this solitary woman from Samaria who's come to draw water from that well as well. Notice a couple of things about this conversation. Jesus begins the conversation with this woman, and immediately as he engages with her, she's shocked. She's extremely surprised. And there's a couple of details in the text that you might not notice, but there's a couple of very transparent reasons why she's so taken aback that this individual would have a conversation with her. What does, uh, what does the writer even say there in verse 9? He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What's behind all of that? First thing we notice is that there is a substantial cultural and even racial barrier between Jews and Samaritans that dates as far back as 700 BC. The Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. In fact, the Samaritans were viewed as an inferior people. They had inferior beliefs. They had inferior practices. They had all these inferior ideas about who God was and where to worship him. They had bloodlines that did not mix and match in the right way. So from bloodlines to beliefs, they were considered inferior. The Jews did not get along with them. So you've got all of these cultural barriers. You've got all of these racial barriers. Then actually, you have a gender barrier. Because in the ancient Near East, a Jewish man would never engage with a woman that he did not know in public. He would not have a conversation with her. He did not know her. She is a stranger. He's in a place that's not his home. He engages with her and asks for a drink of water. She's surprised. Because the Samaritans and the Jews, they don't have any dealings with each other. So you got a gender barrier. And then we have the detail of the story that we don't know a lot about, but we begin to learn a little bit more about as we get into the detail about why this woman is showing up at noon in the middle of the day. What we figure out about her by the end of the story is that she's most likely trying to avoid all of the gossip, all of the chatter, all of the stares, and all of the shame that her neighbors were placing upon her because of her misplaced lifestyle, because of her love life. Because she's probably had enough of it. She says, you know, most women go in the morning. I'm not going to go in the morning. I'm going to go at noon. Nobody goes at noon. Nobody will stare at me. Nobody will whisper. So Jesus engages this woman, and he crosses all of these social boundaries, cultural boundaries, racial boundaries, the gender boundary, and now he crosses the moral boundary. The point of this text is, as I mentioned, generally Jesus is in the place where all of the Jews are spending time together, up in Galilee or down at the bottom in Judea. He finds himself amongst the outsiders of outsiders. That's who this woman is. But to her surprise... Jesus wants to have a conversation with her. She is so surprised that he's willing to cross all of those different barriers. And her surprise only deepens as this conversation continues. Glance at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, A Samaritan woman said to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So what's going on? Jesus engages with this woman who is unknown. He's weary. He's tired. He asks her for a drink of water. She's surprised that he is even willing to have a conversation with her, and she tells him that, doesn't she? You're going to have a conversation with me. What's behind that? 
She pushes back against him, to which Jesus responds, if you really knew what was happening right now, if you really understood who was talking to you, you would be asking me for a drink of water, a special kind of water, what he calls living water. Man, and to be fair to this woman, and maybe even to you as you read this, maybe for the first time, she's confused. You may be confused, but she's skeptical. She's got really no idea what Jesus is talking about. She lives in the desert. She lives in a climate that looks a lot like and feels a lot like Southern California. She understands water conservation. <laughs> she understands the cost of water, not because she has a monthly utility bill, but because she has to put it on her back and carry it from the well back home every single week. She understands the cost of it. And here is this compelling Jewish man who's shown up in her village talking to her about living water. This spring, where, where is it? It's basically, like, tell me where it is. Living water, fresh, cool, invigorating, life-giving. And he's making this offer. If you knew who you were talking with, you would have asked me for living water. See, and as someone who lives in an arid climate, this woman understood the magnitude of real thirst. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? I mean, so thirsty that you almost start to panic. The human body is 60% water on average. So you start to deprive the body for a certain amount of time, and the body itself begins to break down. We have running water. We've got hoses, we've got faucets, running water, living water seems very natural to us. For this woman and these people in that place and that time, this concept of a spring that's fresh and free and cool and invigorating was not just a luxury or a convenience, right? This was a lifeline. What Jesus appears to be saying to this woman is that in the same way that the human body craves fresh water, so the human soul craves a deep satisfaction. In the same way that the water provides nourishment and refreshment and hydration needed for the body to, th for the body to thrive, so Jesus is providing this nourishment and refreshment and hydration for the soul to thrive. What he's really saying is this. In the same way that your body won't make it without physical water, so your soul won't make it without the living water that Jesus wants to give us. Two authors, Tim Keller and Rebecca Pippert, uh, they both mention that when you ask almost anyone what makes them happy, they almost always reach outside of themselves and they begin to pull something in. Think about that question for yourself. What makes you happy? I think about that myself. What makes me happy? I would say a couple of things. Good food makes me happy. A day off that's really well spent with my wife makes me happy. All three of my kids being in school on my day off really makes me happy. <laughs> For real, this is the first time that's ever happened. We have a five-year-old. He's in TK. God bless TK. Right? We, get, we get a date morning on Fridays. Date morning really makes me happy. I think about time with my son going mountain biking. That makes me happy getting to see him thrive, getting to see his gifts, getting to be his coach and taking them to the B-League championship. That makes me happy. But almost every time you think of something, almost every time I think of something, I am reaching outside of the sphere of me and I'm pulling it in. What's going to make you happy? What goes through your mind when you think of that? What are you reaching for? Because the gut reflex of the human person is to pull something from the outside in. What's the new idea? What's that new thing? 
What's that new person? What's that new relationship? What's that new city? What is that new thing going to offer me? Whatever it is, I'm going to pull it in. The starting point for most modern people as they think about happiness and contentment is this. I think I could be happier. In fact, I think I should be happier. And so what we start doing is we start evaluating our life. We start evaluating other people's lives, what they're pulling to the center. But the gut reflex is to reach outside and pull in. And what we're really wondering every time we do that is this. Why can't I get my inside to match my outside? That's the question. Because on the outside, it looks so good. And you reach for this, and you reach for that, you reach for him, you reach for her, you go to that place and that city and that dream, that aspiration, you pull it into the center. And on the outside, it looks so good. But there is consistently a disconnect where you go, how come that shiny new thing, that beautiful new idea has not changed the inside of my life? Why is there a disconnect between out and in? The reality gap is what we would call that the reality of how I'm experiencing it. We're always evaluating the concept of satisfaction. How happy am I? How good is this relationship? What's really going on with the satisfaction level of that new thing that I just reached outside of me and pulled it in? It is an internal dialogue that we're always having. How happy am I? How content am I? How satisfied am I? But what we're really wondering is, how can I get my inside to match the outside? Rebecca Pippert, she says, the irony is that when these securities fail and our life falls apart, we don't stop to ask, what is big enough to build my life upon? Instead, we tend to say, that just proves there's no God or my life wouldn't be this miserable. See, but what Jesus is saying is that there's nothing outside of you that can satisfy like I can. There's nothing you can pull to the core of your being, to the center of your life, to the center of your heart that can provide you what you're ultimately looking for. But what he is saying is that I can put something at the center of your life. I can put it there, and I can provide everything you're looking for. I can satisfy you in the same way that a thirsty body is longing for a glass of cold water. That which you're looking for physically, I am the only thing that can provide that for you deep in your soul. That is his diagnosis of what's going on in the human heart. It's so easy to reach out. He goes, but it's never going to work. But I can put something deep in you, what he calls living water, and it'll start to bubble over. Let me take this a little bit deeper with this concept of part two, treatment. Diagnosis and now treatment. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the well at that point, right? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this woman, I think, is absolutely intrigued by Jesus' offer of living water. But the text is pretty clear that she doesn't fully understand. 
Because when he says, I'm going to give you a different type of water, this living water is going to bubble up from the inside. She goes, I want that. I'm tired of coming to the well. Right? She says, I don't really want to have to walk here all the time. You got living water for me? I'll take it. But notice what John is saying is that her misunderstanding actually doesn't even matter. Because all she's done is she's taken him at his word. You got something to offer me? I don't fully understand what it is. I kind of want your living water, Jesus. It sounds pretty appealing. I live in the desert. I'll take it. But her misunderstanding doesn't even matter. He engages her and has a conversation with her in a radically different way than she ever expected. What he's essentially saying to her when he says, go call your husband is he says, I want to satisfy you deeply to the core, but what you have to do is recognize first where your satisfaction's been. Where's your satisfaction been? See, this isn't a change in subject. A lot of people have kind of leaned into this story and go, Jesus, why that question right here? Are you talking about living water, and then you got to go and bring up her past, and she's got five husbands, and what man he's living with right now is not even her husband. Jesus, why do you got to go there? A lot of the commentators question his question, right? And I want to say that this isn't a change in subject. This is an opportunity for this woman to see that her center has been love, that her center has been affection from men that she's made romantic love and marriage her north star, and it has crushed her. She's reached outside of herself just like you do, just like I do, and she has reached outside of herself for men. She has wanted to be seen as desirable, lovely, and and lovable, and it simply has not worked. One writer captures this conversation that she had with another woman. And this woman confided in her friend. She said, I feel like I'm made to run on the fuel of love. But the minute I get in a relationship, I start to make him my center, my God, and the relationship crumbles. So I'm alone again, wondering why my immense wish to be loved can't be gratified. Why do we carry such a hunger when it can never be met? It all feels like a sick joke. What the scriptures teach us from beginning to end is that you were designed and created to find your fuel, satisfaction, joy, and contentment in God. But because we have decided we do not want to refuel at his pump, the most easy God replacement, the most efficient God replacement is one another. So we look to the other person. We look to other people as a God replacement. He's supposed to fill me. I'm not going to let him do it. You're now going to fill me. And so we, we ask other people to bear this immense burden of the weight of my being. I am going to place the weight of my humanity upon my wife? I mean, I can't even bear the weight of my humanity, right? I'm going to now realize it's too big for me. I got to put it upon her. Because if it's not going to be upon God, it's going to be upon something else. And the easiest God replacement is another human being, generally romantic love. If it's not him, then it's going to be her. If it's not her, it's going to be him. Rebecca Pippert, again, she writes, romantic love, it can be real, it can be deep and lasting, but only if it's not asked to be what it isn't. It is not within our power to give each other absolution. We are unable to fill every inner crevice of longing in someone else. The fundamental change that people are after is beyond us. 
the best of love partners finally disappoint us in the same way that we disappoint ourselves if we forget that they are as limited and finite as we are. It may sound good in the moment, to, but to believe Jerry Maguire when he says, you complete me, is the road to crushing love and crushing the other person. That's like telling somebody else, you're my living water. Right? You are now the source of life in my soul. You complete me. The Bible teaches that when you love something more than God, when you take that thing and you make it your everything, you are destined for disappointment, for cynicism, and failure. When you crave something more than God and begin to build a life around it, the Bible calls that idolatry, right? our question from earlier. An idol is a God replacement. An idol is a satisfaction supplier. Ask yourself a couple of questions. What do you treasure? And why do you treasure it? What do you daydream about? Or who do you daydream about? What emptiness or longing, this is a good one, have you disguised as ambition? See, for this Samaritan, the issue was love. But I actually want to say, I think the issue is always love. No matter if the issue is at work, it's at home, it's at play. It does not matter if the issue is power, control, or approval. I think at the bottom, the issue is always the human heart's desire to be loved. We want to be seen as worthy. We want to be encouraged. We want to be praised. We want to be seen as adding value. Somebody notice I'm adding value to this organization, to this relationship, to this family. Somebody praise my gifts, and we're yearning for power. But really what we're yearning for is somebody to look at us and go, you're valued and you're loved. I think biblically, the human heart's issue is almost always love. And so we can't just let ourselves off the hook. If we say, I don't deal with this love issue that she's dealing with, I think the human heart is always dealing with the love issue. And what happens in our story is the same thing that happens when I'm exposed. When I get brought into the light, when my uh, issue is brought out of the shadows, you go, no, 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 no. You start to run. You start to back up. And this is exactly what this woman does in verse 19. Glance there real quick. This woman attempts to change the subject. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. A radical understatement, right? <laughs> I perceive that you know something about me and my life. I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse uh, 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. I love this because it's so human. So in other words, she comes and Jesus comes and says, I want to fill you up with living water, but before I can do that, you got to notice where the spring of joy and satisfaction has been coming from. He says, go call your husband. I've got no husband. That's right. You've had five, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. She goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about religion. That's what she does. <laughs> Let's go to this uh, old theological debate between the Jews and Samaritans. She wants to take the light off of her own heart. Please don't talk about me. I see that you're smart. I see that you're a prophet. Let's talk about this debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. And she tries to evade the gaze of Jesus, but Jesus knows exactly what's happening. And he essentially, let me summarize those verses where he talks about worship. He says, a time is coming. We're debating between where to worship. Is it on this mountain or that mountain in this temple or that temple? He goes, listen, a time is coming when we're not going to debate place. 
It doesn't matter which mountain. It doesn't matter which temple. You are finally going to be able to worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth, your heart beating in rhythm with his. And she goes, Jesus, I haven't got a clue what you just said. That sounds amazing. I don't really understand it. That's what she says at the end of that dialogue. Okay, I don't really know what you're talking about, this worship and spirit and truth thing, but I do know Messiah's coming. See, and when he comes, he's going to answer all these questions that we have. Let's just wait till he shows up. And right when she says that, he goes, the one you're waiting for, that's me. You can summarize all of that in that way. She wants to evade the gaze of this man. He knows her, goes for her heart. She doesn't want it, but he keeps coming. The one you're looking for is me. Let me say this before I take you to the third part. Many of you are sitting in this room saying, I like Jesus. I'm not sure I love the way he's engaging with this woman. Because if she's prototypical at all, he's going to come for me in that way. I like these conversations with Jesus, but if he's actually going to have a conversation with you, it might look like this. Some of you are saying, I like him, but Jesus, don't make me change anything. And that's what's happening at the end of this story. They're having a great dialogue, but he goes, if you really want life, if you really want living water, something's got to change. And generally, friends, this is where we go, no, 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 I'm good. I like to come, dip my finger in, dip the toe in the water, dip out. Don't ask me to change. And maybe this is why Christianity feels stale, stagnant, and old. It doesn't feel as if it can change your life. Maybe you've been in the church for a long time, but you've gotten close to Jesus, but never let him have a conversation like this with you. Please know he's going to be gracious. Let me take you to this last part. Please be willing to open yourself to him and see where the conversation goes. So the last part, diagnosis, treatment, and part three, lasting cure. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, it says, just then, the end of that conversation, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. I think that's one of the most beautiful and profound verses in the New Testament in the Bible, where this woman says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, this woman had finally had a conversation with a man who didn't need her, use her, or leave her. This woman had finally been seen by someone deep down to the core, and he didn't run. For the first time, this woman realized that she did not need romantic love to be filled and to be full. She just needed love from Jesus. And what happens when Jesus has this conversation with her is she starts to overflow. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that exactly what he said in this story? I'll put something in you that's like this living fountain, and it's going to start to bubble over, so much so that she becomes a conduit to her friends, a conduit of the gospel for the first time, to these people who had been shaming her, who she was wanting to avoid, all of the gossips, all of the shaming, all of the chatter, all of the whispers about her lifestyle, she says, I don't care about that anymore. I'm going to go tell them about this man who told me all about my life. And he didn't run, he didn't use me, didn't leave me, but he loved me. See, the gospel 
erupts in her life. The gospel and mission is always an overflow of what Jesus has done. This is not just some fancy sermon title from a couple of weeks ago, the overflow of grace. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to put something in you and it's going to happen. And you're going to go back to those unexpected people and places and you're just going to begin to tell them. And if you had your Bible, write down verse 42. Because what happens in verse 42 is she starts to tell, she starts to witness. She is this conduit of the gospel. And it says that almost the entire village comes to believe in Jesus because of her. Almost the whole Samaritan village. Let me wrap up this way. Why in this story was this woman healed? Why in this story was this woman healed? I would say the big picture, this woman was healed, was because on a dry, hot, arid day in the ancient Near East, Jesus got tired and he sat beside a well. She was healed because he was 60% water and he was thirsty. And the reason he was thirsty was because the Son of God became a human being and he started walking in our shoes. He started walking through our deserts and he started having conversations with people. There are only two places in the New Testament where Jesus is thirsty. One is right here. And you know where the other one is? On the cross. He says, I thirst. I am desperately thirsty. And he is thirsty on the cross because he says, I'm about to get cut off from the source, the fountain, and the fuel of ultimate joy and satisfaction so that you who are looking for it in all the wrong places can be reconnected. I thirst so you can be filled up. This is who this man is. This is what it means to be in relationship with him. This is the sort of conversation he's always going to have. And as you start to sit in that thing, I promise you, you're going to start to overflow. There's going to be an eruption of the gospel, not just in your life, but in the lives around you. Let me end like this. Do you want your life to change? Honest question. Do you want your life to change? Because if you do, you have to open it. And Jesus is going to come with the speed and skill of a surgeon, with the tenderness of your closest friend. He's going to begin to change things. But I promise you, he will do exactly what he did to this woman. He'll see you to the core. He'll see all of your life, and he won't run. He will stay right there with you, and he'll begin that work. That is the guarantee. He will begin that work. Do you want that? Do you want that sort of experience of Jesus? I beg you and encourage you, take him at his word. Have that sort of prayer life. Sit with us and figure this thing out. We want you to have conversations like this because it'll change the world, and it just might begin with you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, to think about change is scary. Honestly, I don't want to change. I'd like to stay the way I am. And then in the other moments, there are things that I desperately want to change. But I don't know where to go. I don't know how to change. I'm longing for satisfaction joy, contentment that won't run dry. And my foolish heart consistently runs to other things thinking, maybe this time it'll be enough. Maybe this time it'll fill me up. But your spirit is gracious in showing me again and again that the 
true fountain of joy lies outside of me. I can never pull it in, but Jesus can put it directly in the center of my being, in my core. I pray that the gospel would become the North Star of my heart, our hearts, and this church. Because if that happens, there's no telling what you might do. And when there's no telling what you might do, maybe we want to back away saying it feels unsafe. But you have proven yourself. We know who you are. We know that you thirsted for us. Not just that day at the well with the Samaritan woman, but in order to see her to the core and love her and not run, you had to go to the cross and thirst again. And you did that for me, you did that for us, and so I pray that we would sing with joy because of the grace of the gospel. May it erupt in our lives and truly be an overflow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.